This is Todd Banhazel, and you're listening to Cinepod. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, it is time for another Cinepod podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, okay. I he- I hear you're a little Barry White today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the episode was supposed to drop yesterday, and unfortunately, I had no voice yesterday. And today, today, I just have somebody else's voice. All right. Well, I'll try to do as much of the duties of talking as possible to try Duty. to. S- <laughs> to spare what voice you have left. Hey, on the show today is Todd Van Hazel. He is uh, the awesome DP behind the HBO Max series Winning Time. I guess I could just call it Max, but it starts with HBO on every single one. So it, it's, it's HBO. A- I mean, like it's an HBO series that's on Max. I think you, I think that's fair to say. And Todd's great. I, I love talking to him. It was so much fun. And he has been making the publicity rounds as he should because it's a fantastic show and he's trying to, you know, drum up people to, to take a look at his, his great work and as he should. But if you've been listening to his interviews on some other podcasts, I think you'll really enjoy this one. We go into some territory that the other ones don't. And I think that uh, you you might find it refreshing. So for if you're the the Todd Van Hazel super fan out there, this is going to be a great episode Todd, for you. And if you've for never Todd Van Hazel complete us. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've never heard Todd Van Hazel before, uh, then buckle up. This is going to be a great interview. But first, close focus. Uh, we've got a lot of entertainment news going on this week. We kind of have a roundup. Uh, ben, where do you want to start? Well, uh, because it's a sports episode, I think we should start with The Blind Side, Mm. the movie from 2009, uh, won uh, Best Actress Oscar for Sandra Bullock. I actually have to admit, full disclosure, I've never seen this movie. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Oh, wow. I I like sports movies okay. There was something about this that kind of didn't resonate with me at the time. And I feel like when I hear about this lawsuit, it's kind of underscoring the thing that made me kind of go eh. like it's first of all it's a story about an athlete who's taken in he, he is african-american he's taken in by two rich white people who see his raw potential to be a football player and turn him into a star and adopt him and it kind of had the scent of white savior on it and i'm not mm-hmm. saying that there aren't good white savior movies i guess like lawrence of arabia or whatever but you know i don't know it just felt kind of like that part of it sounded tired and that sounded like it was the whole movie. So as it turns out, the person who it is based on is basically saying that most of the movie is a lie and he was never adopted by them, which was a big deal. He was uh, in a conservatorship. Uh, Everyone who remembers the free Britney Spears fiasco from a few years ago knows Mm -hmm. what a conservatorship is, which is to say they were in control of his life. But and his finances. But like he wasn't uh, like if they died, he he didn't inherit their money. He wasn't technically family and he's suing them. Yeah. So not only was he not receiving money from playing football, but he also didn't receive royalties or payments for the movie based on his life. So, you know, yeah, the The book and and the movie. So the book was written by Michael Lewis of like Moneyball fame. And he's an amazing writer and an amazing podcaster, by the way. He's got a great podcast. But I guess, you know, I mean, he's not in control of who gets the royalties. And I I just kind of look at it and I'm like, shouldn't that guy be the main character in the movie about his own life? Like he's the one overcoming adversity. But anyway, it's all just kind of gross. It's it's kind of an incredible story. It did drop a couple of weeks ago. It just now reached us, yeah. I think, with with the lawsuits. But uh, ESPN has got a big write up on it. Uh, you know, there's several write ups out there. We'll put a link in the show notes over at camnoir.com. So uh, anyone who wants to go down the rabbit hole of the Blindside uh, lawsuit really should, because it's uh, it's it's a fascinating read, and uh, I really enjoyed the movie. But I gotta say, it it's really interesting now to kind of get this potential story behind the story. So anyone out there who is uh, interested in this next sort of layer and level of where it's going and maybe some justice for uh, Michael Orr, who is, uh, of course, uh, the retired NFL star and is the the subject of the movie. Uh, I think it'd be great for, to read this and get sort of like, uh, you know, a full circle closure on at least, you know, where is that? You know now? who should write a book about it? 
Michael Lewis. He could get to the bottom of this. <laughs> you know, you joke about it, but maybe it'll happen. All right. So, Ben, a lot of other stories going on in the industry. Uh, of course, the strike continues to grind on. Yeah. But CAA, probably the largest agency, talent agency in, in is the it, world. Is it bigger than William Morris Endeavor? It's close. It's got to be close. It's really, really big. Well, it might be valued more now. now I, I don't know because it was just acquired for $7 billion, which is pretty funny because they consolidated. They bought up ICM last summer yeah. for $750 million and now basically got 10 x by a billionaire who paid $7 billion. Do you think UTA is like sitting at the corner at the dance crying, wondering why no one wants to dance with UTA? I, I, I don't think so. But actually, I feel like UTA and some of the other smaller, smaller, I say smaller, smaller, uh, you know. UTA uh, is one of the big agencies, like the big agencies. And have and, been for a long time. Well, it was always ICM, CAA and UTA. And then William Morris was the big one. And then Endeavor kind of muscled in and became like a big fifth one, but so big that they acquired William Morris and became William Morris Endeavor. And now CAA has acquired ICM. So it's, uh, I'm going to call it like it's starting to be a bit of a monopoly. Like the, these are the big agencies that represent the largest stars, the biggest writers, the biggest directors, the the biggest actors. You know, when you're at CAA, you're talking Margot Robbie is at CAA, these kinds of people. And we're talking about like, you know, uh, Endeavor. They're now like co-producers and financiers and involved in a lot of these productions. And they just brokered a deal, also part of this roundup, where they own now WWE, Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment, and also the ultimate fighting championship in this massive merger where WME is essentially 51% controlling interest of these two entities that have all been merged together. And it was a big payday for Vince McMahon and the uh, you know executive team at UFC. And I find yeah. it very interesting because you've got what everyone considers essentially fake sports wrestling entertainment with what is considered real and relatively brutal sports wrestling or you know mixed martial arts fighting entertainment yeah, yeah. now all under the same banner and so they're looking at like vertical integration and trying to figure out how to create synergies so they can have uh, lower costs and more profit and continue to market each of these different you know what seemed to me seemingly totally different athletic combat sports under the same umbrella to get the same audiences perhaps to enjoy both. And I don't know if they're going to be totally successful with that, but you can't argue with the success that both of them are having both of them, you know, billion plus dollar, you know, enterprises now all under one roof. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. It should also be said for CAA, they were acquired by a French billionaire named Francois Henri Pinot. He is the owner of a company called Artemis. That's a fashion company, or he's the magnate of, of this fashion thing. And I believe He's actually uh, married to Salma Hayek, if I'm not mistaken, who is represented by CAA. And there are questions about, you know, like when you talk about the Ultimate Fighting Championship and WWE, with this, you kind of wonder, like, you know, are, are we suddenly going to see Margot Robbie wearing fashions from this company? Is there a corporate synergy or is having CAA just one of the jewels in their crown? Is it just a, a fancy thing to, to say that they own? But to me, the bigger thing is what you said, the vertical integration of these agencies. And I wonder also if CAA owns Ultimate Fighting Championship, you know, does that mean that they're producing it now? I mean, I am assuming that they have lawyers who have figured this all out, but agents aren't allowed to be producers. Are agencies allowed to be producers? Agents, agencies are, are certainly allowed to package projects. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There, the role of the agency is getting more and more murky as as these conglomerates get larger and larger. It is, but it's yeah. but it's very defined from a legal standpoint. Agents it's supposed. This to be. is why we have agents and managers. Agents are not allowed to be producers. Managers are not allowed to negotiate contracts. There there are very specific roles that these people have. There's guardrails in place, and I wonder if CAA. Again, I'm assuming they have way better legal minds than than me working for them. But is it distorting the nature of what an agency is for them to do what they're doing? Hmm. 
we should have someone who has some experience with uh, the top agencies come in and talk to us about the sort of packaging and expansion expansionist role that agencies are taking in the last few years. It's really it is a trend that's been happening and for not too long now. And as these agencies continue to swell and swallow up more companies yeah. and more things, it, it seems like it's becoming more and more of a thing. So what happens next? I, I'm not sure. Does an agency swallow up a, also, studi- a studio? What What's wh- going to happen next? One more thought about this, and I heard this on uh, The Town, which is a podcast hosted by Matt Bellamy, is that CAA has been claiming that during the strike, they're losing like $25 million per month, that agency. Hmm. Isn't this a super weird time to buy them for this like high-end price? It seems like you... If, if I were looking to buy CAA, if I waited a couple of months, the price would go steeply down. But again, uh, little what do I know about what motivates billionaires or agencies or anything? So, yeah, I, I, I can't get into that. I, I really that's I, outside of my purview. But uh, yeah, those are some weeds that we do not know how to get into. So anyway. Yeah. Wh- why don't we get to the interview with Todd Banhazel? Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Todd Banhazel, and he is, of course, the cinematographer behind the hit series Winning Time, which is currently on Max, formerly HBO Max, and is getting all kinds of write-ups in the press. It is definitely one of the most forward intentional, strong looks for a series that I can I can remember in the history of television. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Hey, I was just telling you off mic that I've gone on a little bit of a uh, binge myself of all the interviews that you've done recently with people talking about winning time. And I want to talk about winning time, too. But I don't think that this is going to be an interview exactly like you've done before. And I want to talk about some stuff that you haven't really gone into. And first off, I want to talk about the original source material. I'm assuming that you read the book Showtime that Jeff Perlman wrote and which, you know, winning time is based on. HBO probably decided they could not put out a television program called Showtime, being that Showtime is their number one competitor. And I'm sure Winning Time probably came out of that. But can you tell me anything about your experience then from the original source material and maybe how those early conversations went on what this was going to be called and how it was going to come into the world? Yeah, I mean, when I got the pilot script, it was called Showtime. And when we started shooting the show, it was called Untitled Lakers Project. And then... um, I don't know. I mean, I think from the beginning, having read the reading the pilot and then reading the book and then just starting to like create what the show was going to look like and how it was going to work visually with McKay. I don't know all that. It's in the script. It's in the book. It's in the script, like the tone, the self-referential quality, the kind of kaleidoscopic feeling, the pulling in of pop culture is all in the script. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It was kind of obvious. I felt like from the first conversation I had with McKay, we both had separately had the idea to mix formats and to give it this sort of sarcastic collage feeling. We never questioned it. I think that the source material is so rich and uh, so vibrant for the show to feed off of. It's incredible to me that the the writers and the the producers of the show managed to assemble this team. And it's like a who's who's cast and all of these pieces just sort of clicking together. I know that you collaborated with a lot of other people in the uh, in the camera department to make this uh, project happen. But also in season two, you got to direct an episode. We're going to touch on all that. But can you talk about how this collage and how this collaboration, I know that you worked with Mihai in season one, and I know that you've got a lot of other people, including people that now you're working with as, as a director. Can you talk about just the human component of this mix of talent that ends up all kind of coming into this, you know, cauldron and out is this hit show? It's all casting to me. I, I think crewing up is casting and uh, the people you bring onto a project make the project like their hearts are on screen. So I don't know, for me, when it came time to find other cinematographers, which I had not experienced in the past, you know, I've, I'm always crewing up operators and things like that. But when it came time to find DPs, I thought of it like looking for artists that I respected their work and felt like I respected the way that they look at things and then also their attitudes and their energies because we were building a family. This show, like, it, it, there isn't like a, there is not like a paint by numbers, like, this is how the show is shot. 
kind of approach. I mean, there is like a rule book, you know, and there's a large look Bible, but I was really looking for people to kind of put their own stamp on it and take every single episode and kind of make a movie out of it, you know? So that's why Mihai, because I've been stealing from Mihai my whole career and I love that man and I respect that man so much, you know? So like, I, I kind of had a feeling he could do it well and we'd become friends, you know? And, and that's why this, the cinematographers in season two, John Matyshek, we had spoken and he had um, shot this boxing movie and they had lit the boxing arena, which was a green screen stage like ours in season one with hard light from above, which really resonated with me. And we were talking about like lighting a stage with hard light instead of soft lights and what it does to skin and trying to get that like really accurate kind of period feeling. And uh, so I don't know, we just had the same taste immediately and we got excited about the same things. So I knew he was right. And then Rick Diaz has been my friend forever since film school. And I knew he was right too, because I knew we were going to take care of each other. And me stepping into directing, I wanted someone who was going to be in the mud with me for this thing, because it was in the middle of, I was shooting an episode and then prepping directing. And then I was godfathering the other episodes that were getting shot. And then I was also starting to prep the final episodes that we were, I was going to be DPing. And it was often sometimes back to back, like some of the days, like the first half of the day we'd be shooting. And then the second half of the day, I would direct two scenes. It was like a TV schedule. So I just needed people that I really trusted and really cared about. I, I think that's about the most fantastic answer I think I've ever heard about casting your your crew and casting your collaborators because I think that's really true. You sometimes kiss a few frogs before you find you find your people. You find the people who like, you can go into this with. Uh, let, let's just jump a little bit further back because you know HBO, I guess now Max, has some tremendous resources available to the creatives, particularly to to DPs. And I'm thinking specifically of like the camera assessment series tests that. It used to be up until this year, the only way you got access to any of that is you made a multi-million dollar show for HBO. And then you got to go into theater space. You got to go into, uh, you know, color grading suites and you got to look back. This is tremendous archive of camera formats and tests and this, that and the other. Talk a little bit about your testing process, because I feel like a lot of people have a tendency to think that format equals result. Oh, I chose an Alexa. So this looks like this, or I chose 35 millimeter film. It looks like this, that as you know, and anyone who's a professional in this industry knows is a complete misnomer. The format is agnostic and can look like so many different things. And I imagine that in your research, you must have done testing, testing, you know, underexposure, overexposure, push processing, pull processing, cross processing, you name it. Can you talk about that period of time, that prep work, that education you did for yourself of coming up with what we have now? I mean, testing is everything to me. Uh, We tested for months really extensively, but that's how I approach every project period. You know, even if I think we're going to be shooting on either a format or a lens or something that I've used before, I find that like, uh, for every project, it's almost like it's a blank slate for me, like emotionally, like something that I loved in a previous project is going to feel totally wrong now. You know, like it's been a while since anamorphic has felt right for a project. And when I look at anamorphic lenses now, when we tested them for winning time, they felt actually really wrong, which is so funny because there's been times where I've looked at those exact same lenses and said like, these are the only lenses that can exist ever, you know, and I really, so I find that I kind of fall in love all over again every time. Winning time, especially because we were trying to break things down, I wanted to know it really intimately. I wanted to know what we were doing and what the looks were and where the edges were because I knew we were going to push the edges, but I also wanted to get everyone on the same page and show people the test so that while we were shooting, people were already on board for it. You know, I mean, a lot of this process was about helping people understand on the team what we were doing and that all the things that are normally called mistakes we were embracing, you know, like post especially like we had uh we asked photochem to not dust bust the negatives so that hairs would stay on the on the film and there's a lot of different people there's a lot of places where that can fall through the cracks when they're qcing and you you'd think that people have these meetings and they say cool how here's how this show's being done but that doesn't happen it's like everyone's on autopilot it's like god this is what we do every show's the same so you have to really like continually corral people with information you know um and I wanted to make sure that me and the director were on the same page. I want to make sure that HBO loved what we were doing and wasn't scared about what we were doing because we were going to push grain and push underexposure and push mixed formats, you know. I mean, I tested every stock Kodak makes on 35 and 16 and 8. So a lot of the look photochemically and digitally was done to approximate like what we remember our favorite movies looking like when we saw them in an art house theater in the 80s, you know, which is not how the original print looked at all. And it's certainly not how the negative looked, you know. So yeah, we tested all of that and we tested every lens known to man in the spherical and I thought it was going to be vintage glass, of course. And then I came to discover that we were doing so much photochemically that was destroying the negative that actually for the first time in my life, we just needed really clean 
contrasty, good lenses that did the work. So we also bracketed. I mean, we literally, once we found our film stocks and our film print look, then we bracketed exposure half stops up to seven stops, half stops down seven, found out where the thing blows out and where it, because I think our, our eventually our, our look, I think was um, four stops over and four stops under, but really, really three stops till white or three stops till black. And then really you're working with two over and two under because that's where skin's going to play. So it really was like shooting a very old reversal print, which I laugh about because it really made it hard for us. <laughs> like be shooting on set and you'd be like, man, they figured out how to solve these problems of latitude. But, we, you know, that was the look. There's a longer answer even than that rambling answer. But oh, yeah, I'm sure. But, but that, that gives a wonderful test and a good, uh, a wonderful sample for us to jump off to. So are you transferring, are you printing the negative and then transferring the prints? Or are you actually transferring from the original negative, creating your look in sort of a combination of digital intermediate before it's going to, to the final? Or is there an extra photochemical step in there that uh, I'm, I'm not we, aware of? Yeah, we never went back to a print. I would have loved to, but I also, I feel like in my experience in the past printing negatives and just looking at dailies that way, I kind of had an awareness of like what was going to happen there so for us we just started making up our own imaginary print like our fantasy idea of an old print so we scanned the negative and then never went back but we ended up pushing all the film everything's push process just like if we shoot film on winning time it's push one we also underexposed the pilot like a full stop on the meter and then i think the show was more like a half stop it depends on the scene there were a few undercooked scenes on the pilot that look amazing but i was just like all right i can't like <laughs> it's like uh and then the rest is like a, it's a combination of a LUT that we created that's based off of reversal print stocks but then we kind of riffed on it and then there's a bunch of other things happening digitally to it to kind of destroy it so it's a hybrid for me. Yeah, there's there's definitely some noise, and it's not noise as a pejorative. Noise is like it's a good thing. There's a, there's a grain in it, and then it feels like there's almost a digital noise that is enhancing that grain as well. And all of that sort of like that cocktail, that recipe comes out with this look. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was reading a New York Magazine's culture center called Vulture. I don't know if you saw you caught this particular uh, bit of criticism on Winning Time, but it was specifically about your work. And they the, the headline of it is. Does winning time think it needs to look this way? Did you happen to read this piece? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I did read it and I loved it. I actually, I really loved in season one when art, when people would talk, articles would come out and people like said that the show was like unwatchable. I was like, man, how cool is that? Like <laughs> that we made something that like some people are like, this is really inspiring to me. And some people are like, I, this, I hate this. I cannot watch this. And I don't know, winning time just wanted to be loud. Like it, the book it's based on is called Showtime. It's about the Showtime era Lakers the show wanted to have as much bravado as Jerry Buss, and it wanted to be putting on this, like, L.A., Hollywood, loud, maximalist thing. And so, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's like a taste thing for me. The goal was always to be really bold with the style, but then to basically teach the audience the vocabulary so that it just disappears. And I feel like I hope that happened more in season two. Like, hopefully the story takes over so that, it's just access. It's just how the form is just helping tell the story, you know, but I don't know. I acknowledge it's a bit of a magic trick when something's kind of so at the front and loud, you know, but I just, it's the art that I like. Like I like when art, whether it's music or film, where the, the form, where the way it's made is part of the emotional experience is part of the theme is part of the statement. And they can work in tandem to me. I, it doesn't take me out personally if the story and the emotion is working. So I don't know. It's taste for me. There's a McLuhan uh, message in there somewhere about the medium being the message here. But uh, yes. at, the, at the same time, I have to say that I think it's wonderful. So infrequently does cinematography invoke controversy. And I, I'm thinking, though, that HBO has definitely been a leader in that space and probably with the work of like Robert McLaughlin on, you know, the criticism they received for Game of Thrones and how dim and how printed down so many of these scenes where the, the timing was so far down. And now again, with uh, with Winning Time, some of the commentary in that particular vulture piece was saying things like just how overly masculine the show is and then how aggressive the style is. And it's, it's very interesting because I, I can certainly see the criticism, but it's not like you were making natural born killers. It's not like you were doing this thing that really was aggressive and really had a style that was an affront to the audience. If anything, I would call the style, the, the look of winning time is nostalgia. It is this nostalgia that 
I think anyone who was alive at that time might look back at how they remember watching television, how they remember watching home movies, how they remember watching the slideshows or their relationships, even more so than how it really was. It's exactly like that mental, one step mentally removed that that we all have in the back of our brains versus actually having a clear memory of what it was to experience it. If I'm hearing you correctly, and that was always the goal, tell me about the buy-in from the executive producers. From the get-go, Adam McKay, everyone else involved in this, did everyone know this is the look, this is the style, we're just going to lean into this all the way and never look back? Or did you have battles with network and other people where it's like, everything's a half measure. Do we have to figure out how to dial this back? Did you ever uh, run into situations where they said, this is just way too much? And were the editors in that conversation? Because I have to imagine that in sort of the style of all of this working together, how much is production and post talking to each other on set? I know you're covering yourself and you've got some plans, but I have a feeling that sometimes things are rolling and you're not necessarily sure that 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 shot's going to get chosen. Yeah, I, it was a what you were describing was the ongoing process for the entire two seasons. But I think that's what we chose. We created that scenario because we decided to make a show in a way that was kind of experimental in a platform that doesn't normally work in a way where these kinds of risks are embraced easily because it passes through so many hands. So for me, it was just communication. And I mean, I always made sure, like you're saying, to cover the f- scenes in 35 millimeter with two cameras in a way that was telling the story in a quote unquote safe way, you know what I mean? But that gave us the freedom to let that C camera or that D camera go crazy and find happy accidents and experiments and play with the different formats. And I think on the pilot, yeah, McKay and I, we tested and we fell in love with what we were going to do. And I made a look Bible and that got approved by HBO and by the producers and we were all behind it. And then, you know, we shot the pilot that way. I think the thing we wanted to figure out was in the edit, was it going to be salt and pepper or was it going to be like completely baked into the DNA of every scene? I was hoping that it was going to be completely baked in kind of the way, I mean, Natural Born Killers is a huge reference for me and also like JFK, all that stuff that Richardson did where it shows that it can be in the middle of a scene and it doesn't have to be just flair. It can actually be the emotional part of the scene, you know, or let you see a character in a different way. And what we found on the pilot is that it was edited completely organic, like deeply into the the DNA of it. And then once the pilot was approved and set, that was the look and that was the thing to replicate from then on all the early cuts were even more of this format i mean certain scenes were completely you know we wanted to do full scenes in ikigami or full scenes in eight millimeter if it felt right you know and it got it got pulled back you know in the note giving process it kind of finds its balance but now when i watch the episodes i actually think it fell exactly where it needed to go there's a lot of darlings left on the cutting room floor but when i watch it i think actually everyone gave really good opinions between the directors and the editors and our producers and hbo and the cinematographers like we found the line where it doesn't take over the point where you hopefully stop, where you lose the thread of what's happening story-wise, you know? But yeah, I mean, it was a constant conversation going back and forth. And it was also me checking in and saying like, hey, you know, there's this really amazing thing that we did on this, on the weird camera that, you know, take a look at. Or also the editors, to their credit, would also dig so deeply into the footage of the mixed formats that we started being like with the operators, like, hey, if we don't love it, we should not shoot it because... They're being really brave, which I love. Like, they're finding all of our stuff. They're finding all the weird mistakes. I think everyone in every department felt like we're taking these risks, so we have to trust each other that each person's taste at the right time is going to do the right thing. And I don't know. Yeah, it was was a trust fall. Uh, this show is not without some uh, controversy, of course, from the actual people who are being portrayed in it. Uh, Jerry West famously had his lawyers send letters to HBO saying that uh, he objected to his portrayal. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar didn't go that far, but he did you know, write a whole thought piece. He's so cerebral. I, I, I've loved this guy's writings for, for many years, but he talks all about, you know, at 75, nothing in this show portraying him could possibly affect his day to day life, which I thought was amazing. But t- tell me being at ground zero, being at ground zero with the production, with the team, with the people who are, who are living and breathing this, uh, you know, day in and day out. How does the effect of the, the people who are being portrayed, in my opinion, 
brilliantly, even if they they object to it, that the performances are so amazing and compelling. How is it being in the midst of all of that? Does it feel like a circus? Does it feel like you never know what's happening today? What's your reaction uh, to the team and hearing about how, you know, this is not a documentary. This is this is narrative based on what ostensibly is a story of what really happened. How does your your work of fiction bleed into the real world, inform what's going on back and forth? Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, we love these characters. We love the actors and we love the characters. We love their stories. And I think for us, Winning Time wanted to start off really fun and silly and like the characters are kind of caricatures. And then you're surprised that all this depth starts coming through and they have these arcs throughout the season, especially Kareem, you know. And So everything we did was done with empathy from the writers to us shooting it on the day there's an army of lawyers making sure that the things we're saying in the script and the things we're shooting on the day check out. So I don't know. It's out of our control. And I totally understand how they feel. I don't know what it's like to have a show made about me that has fun with all the goods and the bads in my life, you know. So I don't know. I guess I just felt like it was our job to tell something with empathy and with as much kind of like love and humanity as possible. Uh, I hope that over time they've changed their opinions, but it's, it's out of our hands, you know. I mean, that's part of the reason for the formats, too, for me, is that like they're not supposed to be aggressive. They're supposed to actually show, you know, the film, the 35 is supposed to show these characters as culture remembers them, as these myths and these icons, as cocky as they feel. And then the 16 is supposed to show the audience what we remember news footage looking like of these real characters in our culture. And then the Ikigami was supposed to show them as vulnerable human beings with blemishes on their skin and without any romance and no grain. So all of that was done for character reasons, you know? So I, I don't know. That, that's it. Yeah. It, it's an interesting place to be because how rare is it that you get to make a, a narrative piece about living people who are public figures, especially in such a world as professional sports? I don't think very many people get that opportunity and don't necessarily have that feedback loop. The way this industry seems to work is it's almost always long after someone's passed on, or maybe it's a political figure, or maybe it's someone else who's in the in the cultural relevancy for a short period of time. But really, this is chronicling decades of many people's lives, the entire Lakers organization and the, the other characters who sort of filter in and out through professional basketball. This is not an opportunity that, that many people get and certainly don't have that feedback loop from the people themselves being able to chime in. I think yeah. it'd be great if there were more people who were excited to relive this sort of portion of their lives through the, the series. But I think it's interesting. Do you feel a responsibility in the work that you bring to it because of this, this layer or not so much? You're going to go forward exactly the same way you do it, regardless of having the these people potentially going to be watching it and, and giving their opinions in the court of public no, opinion? No, I, I feel a huge responsibility. I mean, I thought about this with Hustlers as well, because that was based on real people that were still alive. And I think it's our job to remember that it's real people and then treat the scenes with as much humanity and empathy as possible. The episode I directed has Larry Bird's father's suicide in it. He discovers his body with the police and that really happened. I don't think it happened exactly how we did it, but it happened. And so all of our conversations in that scene were about how to represent not only something that uh, a trauma that really happened to someone whose family and, and who's still here. Uh, how do we show a scene that happened and needs to happen for us narratively and really happened, but also be emo like deeply emotionally respectful to it? So our decision in that scene was to basically say, well, we can never know what it's like for Larry Bird to have experienced that. So we're not going to try to represent that. Instead, we're going to represent the idea that we can't actually really access this. So we did that by basically shooting it in a way where it feels like his memory or what he's comfortable remembering or what we imagine a person, like the, the odd things that they remember about the moment, not the actual moment itself and how we shot the body and this is not a horror movie, you know what I mean? Like, we want to obscure it. It's about, like, the feeling, and that's... So, I don't know. I, yeah, it's an enormous responsibility. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jeff Perlman has been taken to Twitter to talk about winning time. And it, it covers this very specific period of the, you know, the Lakers dynasty that this, you know, period of time and anyone like myself who actually followed the Lakers back then, who was a fan who remembers, you know, the years of the ups and the downs knows that there's kind of a chunk of time where the Lakers didn't do so well. And before they come back and win some more, it's like, it's a number of years. 
I'm not asking you to give anything away, but there's going to be just in the reality of the story of what happened, some dark periods ahead. Can you reveal, do you know what's yet to come? Season three, season three in the works. Can you say, can you not say? I I actually honestly don't know. Um, Hmm. I think we are in the Empire Strikes Back portion of the winning time story. I don't know what's going to happen. I will say that if in this moment right now with what's happening with streamers and how broken everything is, if someone likes a show, they should really watch it, especially the day it comes out and not wait to binge the whole thing because they really do look at the numbers and a lot of shows are getting canceled. And I, I just I have no idea if winning time is going to continue. I know that people love it. I know a lot of people watch it, but I do think that like nothing's for sure right now. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like if fans of TV want stuff to continue, they really actually have to support shows, even if they're like big shows. It's it's funny how volatile everything is right now. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the strike because I didn't want to be the one to do it. But it is the type of thing that it is in, in everyone's mind right now, certainly everyone in Hollywood. I have a business that's based on Hollywood and it, it is uh, not doing great in the strike as as a lot of people are, including uh, people who work in all sorts of ancillary fields. I was in a barbecue restaurant a week ago in uh, Studio City that told me that since the strike, they have can't even believe how much their restaurant has fallen off, which to me is like, mm. I would not think that the two things are connected, but they're like, no, post house. All these people would order in all the time from us. And that's all just gone. And we're seeing sort of a destruction of the primary infrastructure, including rental houses. I know one rental house in particular has had over 20 layoffs in the last couple of months. And it's like a lot of these people, they have mortgages, they have families they have to feed. They may or will likely leave the industry to something that is stable right now so that they can continue to do that. And some people may not return. What are you seeing from your perspective? How are you feeling about the strike and where it's going? And what does your crystal ball tell you? It's as good as anybody else's right now. I have no idea what's going to happen. I think it's a David and Goliath situation right now. And I think we are actually fighting for the soul of this industry. And I also think we're fighting kind of for the soul of capitalism in a way. Because you're right. Like, it's not just the filmmakers. It is the entire economies that are built up around this beautiful industry that have been functioning for decades and decades and decades in this beautiful way that some really greedy people have broken and some really greedy companies have broken. So I don't know how it's going to end up. And I think for me, the work I've been doing is trying to figure out ways to find inspiration and hope when it feels risky right now. It feels like the thing that I love, you know, movies, my church is uh, at risk of being broken permanently and people's livelihoods as well. So I don't know. I have no crystal ball, but I do completely support it. And I think that as painful as it is, it is now is the time to try to actually change something or it's going to be too late forever. And I know that our industry has gone in these big cycles from before we were alive. So I'm sure on a macro scale, something is going to happen that eventually I hope that independent cinema has a new rebirth. I'm sure some version of it will. But how much collateral damage along the way, it really it worries me. It makes me sad. But I don't know. It's worth the fight. Let's let's jump back in time to uh, to little Todd. When did you get the bug for this industry? When did you decide that being a cinematographer was something that you wanted to do, that that was your calling, that this was going to be your life? How old were you? Where were you in the world? What you know, where were you at? I wanted to make movies my whole life. I, I don't know where it came from. I mean, when I was a little kid growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, like near San Dimas, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Land, I was just like a space cadet. I was just like pretending in my head all the time and creating worlds and humming to myself and kind of pretending I was in movies. I think I realized later, like, oh, I wasn't pretending I was in space. I was pretending I was in a movie about space. I don't know where that came from. My dad took me to go see Arnold Schwarzenegger action movies growing up, and those were my favorites, and I really wanted to make action movies, and I remember, like, jumping out of our lemon tree, pretending that I was jumping out of a helicopter in Predator, and that became me playing with my parents' video camera, which became making movies in junior high and high school. It's just what I wanted to do forever, and then I kind of fucked around in high school and didn't get that great grades because all I wanted to do was make movies with my friends, and so I got into the best school I could get into. I got said no to all the film schools I wanted to go to, but I got into one that had a film program in San Jose State and showed up and, you know, they said you had to wait two years to take the directing class. And I went to the teacher after the first class. I said, like, I'm a freshman, but I'm not here to wait two years. And 
like I promise you if you let me in now like I will not let you down like I'm here to make movies you know and she her name's Amy Glazer and she changed my life she let me in uh Amy Glazer was my Amy Glazer was my high school drama teacher no way oh yes that blows my mind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> for for one year. Yeah. She came she came in and taught my senior year. Yeah. She at that time she was Amy Glazer Connolly. But yes, uh-huh, I, uh-huh. There, I, there there can't be that many Amy Glazers. That, so. that blows my mind. She changed yeah. my life. I mean, I, it, she really took a risk on this like young kid, you know. Yeah, that's the answer. I don't know. I just I fell in love with it. I you know, it's like it's the same story I think a lot of us have movie hopping, getting kicked out of the theater, watching three movies a day on the weekends. And I used to cut out the newspaper, you know, the uh, L.A. Times before yeah. the Internet, I guess, or the mm-hmm. early Internet. And sure. you would highlight the different times on the different movies in your, and you keep it in your pocket so that you could, like, check in the bathroom at the movie theater. Like, OK, cool. Like Thin Red Lines starting. And I've, you know, I, can, I can go see the bullet time scene in The Matrix because I know that that happens 40 minutes in. And then after that, I'll go see whatever, you know, it, it was church. It was um, it was everything. I actually, I remember uh, Spielberg's movie came out. What was it called? The last one, um, The Fablemans. The Fablemans came out and I, it blew my mind because I couldn't believe I was watching like what I felt like was my story. Like this kid that was bullied that then found a personality and found like a way to have an, uh, an identity in school by being the kid that could do something good, could make movies and then and use use that to like, weaponized against my bully like it blew my mind and then i realized that so many kids this is their story i don't know it's it's really cool that is really cool okay so uh, where do you go after school because you don't just go from school to winning time there's a lot of steps in between there what was next for for your journey well, I just wanted, I wanted to be a director before I knew that there were different jobs on set. Cause that's the one that they tell you that you're going to, you know, everyone's, you're going to be Spielberg, you know? So during undergrad, I just, a group of uh, my friends, we all were like shooting each other's stuff. We were each, everyone's making short films and feature films. And I ended up kind of being the de facto cameraman. Like I was just shooting the student features while also kind of directing my own stuff. And everyone's just, you know, you all help each other. And I had this DP mentor named Jim Orr, who we'd done these like 35 millimeter music videos in this class. And I had ended up ACing and I had no idea what I was doing. And I can't believe they gave me the responsibility of pulling focus on these things. And when I graduated, I I said to him, like, I just want to go down to L.A. and and work. And he had said, you should check out AFI. And I remember thinking, like, I I don't want to keep going to school. You know, I'm ready to I just want to get into it. And he had said that, um, well, if you can get in, it won't make your career, but it, it could help because of the community. So I tried to get in and on some miracle got in and went to AFI. And by the time AFI was like med school, I mean, it was two years, super intense every day of your life, living and breathing, filmmaking with other people. And by the time that was over, I was just madly in love with cinematography and realized that that was my way of of doing this thing. And also my way of working with people. I, I don't know. It just, yeah, I never, I never looked back. And I know you worked in music videos for a long time. Is music videos still part of your repertoire? Do you, do you ever, you know, moonlight in that or are those days done? Uh, how much of music video informs the way you work today? I mean, I owe so much to music videos. I mean, because the other part of the story is that then I graduate AFI and nobody wants to hire you and you're right back where you started and you're broke and you're in debt. And it's, yeah, it's like exactly you might as well. like before. But now you're, you know a few more things and you're in a mountain of debt. That's pretty yeah, much how, how it works. Yeah. It's like the, it's the dark year, they call it. I, I, I remember hearing from other students, they called it the dark year. And I couldn't believe that multiple generations have the same term for it. It's the dark year. You're like, nobody cares. Um, I've heard of it called as the, the trench of sorrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially when you're at school, I feel like everyone tells you guys are the future of cinema and then you graduate and you're like, no, you're totally not. No one gives a shit, you know? So I did what everyone does. You just scrap together and you, you work on everything you can for free and you crew. I AC'd, I gaffed, I, I was the best boy electric on something. And I think the lights were blowing up on set and I didn't know why it turned out I had plugged in the things that were, I had no idea what I was doing, you know, like, but yeah, music videos were like a really amazing way to start like building steam. And they were probably the early stuff that started started to look like what I wanted something to look like, you know, because, you know, you're shooting like small web videos and content that doesn't look, they're not asking for it to look, it's talking heads, interviews, whatever, you know, but the music videos you could make look really cool and you're kind of making little weird short films and yeah, I'm still open to them. I mean, the thing that bothers me and makes me sad about music videos is that they're so creative, but the ambition always so far outweighs the means and the, the schedules. I, yeah. I find that they just, they're massacres often and it's not fair and I don't know, these poor directors. And I think the best way for me to do music videos is to look 
at what the limitations are and weaponize them. And so often I think we don't do that. We just like start with the treatment or the dream and we just say like, well, there's 17 things to do and we're not going to, we're going to panic and we're going to do like nine of them in a panic and it's going to suck. And that'll be the video as opposed to like, why don't we just cut them now and do seven things really well, you know, but it's, that's out of my hands often, you know, but that, that's my opinion. Yeah. Hmm. So single camera episodic, and I know that winning time, not single camera, is some of the most difficult, demanding, punishing sort of work that one can do on your body. And as a leadership role, as a cinematographer, director of photography, and also as director, how are you balancing that? How are you balancing your own personal well-being with what your responsibilities are on set and potentially 100 plus people that are, you know, looking to you for guidance for as the lead of various departments, including lighting, camera camera, grip, and or working with actors and producers. How, how are you balancing all of the insanity that comes along with set work? I, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially now and especially after winning time because it was so difficult is like, I believe it's our job as uh, department heads to lead in a way that creates a safe working environment for each other to do our best work. And I think that includes taking care of ourselves outside of work cultivating a life where we're able to show up on set and then have our cup filled so that we can bring our best selves to set. I mean, it's crazy how many people I feel like when you when you meet, you work with crew members, it's like everyone's coming out of bad marriages, quote unquote. It's like people are coming out of situations where they've been abused or they've been taught that they're, they don't have value. They've been taught that like, the system is designed to kind of break people down so that they just kind of work and they keep their heads down and they don't want to get yelled at and they don't want, but they need the work so they don't want to get fired. And like, it's designed to make, I think, make people kind of forget why they love this because if they're exhausted and broken down especially in tv then they're not going to complain and it, they become numbers and they become part of the budget they're a line item you know and that's just so antithetical to the experience i want to have on set and i think because we're working in a deficit where that is the system that is like the that's the standard i think that people are used to unfortunately not all the time but especially in TV, maybe more often. I think it's our job to be really loud beating that drum and show people that that's not the case here, that this is a new marriage, a new situation where you are respected, where you, I'm asking you to really bring yourself here, you know, like really be here on set with us and like make this thing with us. Uh, and then you see people come out of their shells. You see it takes a little time, but you see people remember why they love doing this and the, why they love coming to work, hopefully. And, you know, we... It's why we try to finish our days in as fast as possible and show up as prepared as possible. It's not just to make something good. It's so that we make something in a beautiful way together. And I don't know, I guess I just think like right now, it's a really big responsibility we have because of how broken everything is. So when we get a chance, when we're lucky enough to get back on set together, like I just think we have to be really kind to each other and that's going to make better work. Like I believe that that vibration shows up in the work. So I don't know. That's my forever work to try to be that kind of person on set and also to forgive myself when I can't be that person, when I'm exhausted and I don't have it, you know, but it's all part of it. Todd, I think that's actually a really good place for us to leave it. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? I know they can see your work on Max. I know they can see your work on, on other streaming services. But do you have a website? Do you do social media? Is there some place they can connect with you if people listening to the sound of my voice want to reach out? Yeah, I have a, I mean, Instagram's actually a great place to reach out. I find the community on Instagram is really beautiful. Yeah, I'm there. What's your handle on Instagram? It's my name, Todd Banhazel, as difficult as that is to spell. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Todd, it's been a delight to have this chat and uh, I really can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. It's really nice talking. All right. So that was Todd Banhazel. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. It was uh, great to have you. I can't wait to see what you do next. Hey, Ben, you know what time it is? What time is that? It's bill paying time. We have to thank our fine friends over at Airy, makers of incredible cinema equipment uh, used throughout the industry and around the world. They have introduced today a brand new light called the Airy Sky Panel X. It is a one foot by two foot shaped light. It's available in a modular configuration so you can stack them. So you can have one, you can have two, you can have three. And of course, this increases your output and increases your power draw. But really, it's a very clever update to the original Sky Panel. It's also IP66 rated, so it's, you know, basically waterproof. It has a brand new light engine. Instead of being an RGBW, it's an RGB ACL. The light is not only a soft light, 
as most people expect panel lights. It's also a hard light and has lenses, interchangeable lenses that you can put in front of it, which increases the output and reduces the beam angle. Because it's modular, you can stack it so you get a soft light, a hard light, uh, an increasing size light that can all go into a yoke. One human being can stack them and take it apart themselves. There's also other configurations where you can take the lights and you can put them in a horizontal. It has advanced software options, including a mode to best match the spectral response of the Arri Alexa cameras, which to me is just really, really smart. So Arri is really taking this holistic approach to all of their products, and I think it's really amazing. There's actually way too much for me to talk about the Arri SkyPanel X in this read here in the in the podcast. But if you go to hotrodcameras.com, you can actually get all the information about the new light, and it's probably the most exciting light that Aries ever introduced. So definitely worth checking out. There's some videos. Go to Hot Rod Cameras and check out the Airy Sky Panel X. And now, short ends. So Ben, it is time for short ends. It's the time when we talk about our obsession of the week. It could be anything. It could be something, uh, you know, creative, something technical, something you saw in the news. What is your obsession this week? What are you all about? Uh, it's an endorsement wrapped in a gripe. Whoa, an endorsement wrapped in a gripe. All right. What's yeah. that? It's a relatively new movie that premiered on Netflix recently called They Cloned Tyrone, directed by Joel right. Taylor and uh, shot by Ken Sang, who shot like Deadpool. He's, he's, he's an amazing DP. Uh, looks great. Oh, and most importantly, it stars John Boyega, Jamie Foxx and Teona Paris and Kiefer Sutherland. It's a really solid, cool film. It's kind of like a funky mashup of uh, Get Out and They Live and Cabin in the Woods and The Matrix. There's like so many ideas in it. And uh, I think uh, Joel Taylor wrote Creed or he wrote one of the Creed movies. And it's a really solid, cool, beautiful, great looking film. And when I was watching it, I was like, why does Netflix not release these in theaters? It really needs to be in theaters. And I feel like John Boyega and Jamie Foxx are definitely stars that we're used to seeing in theaters. You know, Kiefer Sutherland, we're used to seeing on TV or in movies, but it's just so well put together. It's so entertaining. It's such a cool idea. And I feel like it's, I know I come on here and complain about the uh, contentization of our entire industry, but I feel like it's one of those movies that just shows up on Netflix one day. I didn't see trailers for it. I didn't see bus ads or billboards or posters at my local cinema. It's just one day there it is on Netflix. And I feel like this movie really would have done well in theaters and, mm. and then could go to Netflix. Like you have it after that Netflix, like give it a shot. I I'm at a loss for why movies like this don't, they don't roll the dice and see how they play on the big screen. Uh, because I feel like this would be, attract an audience if you're listening to this definitely check it out it's called they cloned tyrone john boyega is one of those actors who kind of disappears into every role i just i love what he does jamie fox is so engaging and so funny and uh, tayona paris you've seen her in lots of stuff she's been Mm -hmm. in a million things but i feel like this is probably one of the first times i've seen her this prominently in a role like this and uh they're all great. Dialogue is brilliant and and funny and and interesting. And you know, there's I, I actually I'd also say there's a bit of a Groundhog Day thing to this. It's such a cool mashup of so many cool ideas, and I hope more people see it. But also, I know that Netflix has experimented with putting their movies in theaters. It's usually around an Oscar push. I'd like to see more popcorn movies like this that are just damned entertaining get an opportunity to reach a bigger audience because to me it's like what do these movies exist for if to not create a cultural conversation and i think that when you just spew it out on netflix without any real fanfare like you're basically robbing the movie of even the opportunity to be a cultural conversation and it bums me out because i feel like if they had done this with get out it might have disappeared uh, you know, there, there are any number of movies where if you if you you no matter how good they are, if they just show up on your streaming service and and that's all that ever happens with them, people aren't going to find them as easily. And, and I'm not crapping on Netflix. I think it's awesome that Netflix made this movie. I think Netflix also could take these movies and do a try a theatrical run when you've got a movie that's really awesome. Friggin put in a movie theater. Anyway, end of rant. It's a good rant. And uh, and give it all our listeners the title of that movie one more time. They cloned Tyrone. 
Yeah, it totally sounds like up my alley. I'll totally watch that. Uh, moving on to my short end this week. It's something I've never actually done before as a short end. It's an article. Uh, oh. Vulture.com did a story called The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. And I don't know if you caught this, but it's really good. I will, I will forward it to you. And the headline is, The Most Overrated Metric in Movies is Erratic, Reductive, and Easily Hacked, and Yet It Has Hollywood in Its Grip which I thought was uh, which was like, what a great headline. And the story did not disappoint. And as I was reading it, I was reminded of one of the first Vice articles that I ever saw online. And it has a great accompanying video about the hacking of TripAdvisor by very dedicated people out there. And they decided to make a restaurant that did not exist. The number one rated restaurant in London. Do you remember the story? I don't remember the story. That's freaking awesome. It was called The Shed. And yeah, this this fake restaurant called The Shed, they got it to be number one on TripAdvisor. And so after they basically completely hacked TripAdvisor and hacked the public with, you know, all these people clamoring to get into this this restaurant that did not exist, they made a, uh, you know, fake phone number that was always busy. And if you did get through, it had a message. Yeah, you had to leave a message and then maybe they call you back. They decided to actually open the restaurant for one night only in someone's backyard and they like did all this like really erratic stuff and they fed everyone tv dinners that they microwaved but then put them on plates and put like little fresh basil on it and dressed it up and then uh, the reviews that came out after they actually opened the restaurant blew it up even more. It's oh a whole, it's, it's, it's a whole fantastic story. We'll put a link in the show notes at camnoir.com. You definitely want to watch the vice story about the shed at Dulwich, I think is what it was called. And we'll, uh, we'll have a link, but we'll also have what spawned all this, the decomposition of rotten tomatoes. It's a great article. It's not a long read, but it basically goes through a, about a movie called Ophelia. That was a Sundance film that critics didn't particularly care for. And they talk about how they hired these PR agencies essentially to figure out how to hack Rotten Tomatoes. How to astroturf it. Exactly. And uh, it's interesting because they got a comment from someone who works at one of these companies who said, oh, yeah, you're really reaching here. But they go through a lot of great detail. And I don't want to just spoil it and give it all away here, especially since it's a quick read. Anyone who is fascinated by the idea that if you make a public voting system and put it on the Internet that is inherently susceptible to manipulation and distortion, you'll enjoy this. Because I really feel that way, especially when I'm watching like YouTube videos about people reviewing gear. And I hear these people say like, oh, man, this this is a piece of a great piece of gear. And it's like every single one of those people probably got that piece of gear for free or may not even be qualified to like actually review what that gear is. And this is just my own little soapbox that I'll, yeah, yeah. Not naming I'll hop, names. hop Yeah. I'll hop off of now, but it's like anytime you introduce the, the capability for someone to be bribed in various different ways to receive some compensation. And they talk about it in this article and in the TripAdvisor one, it's not that they were doing it because they wanted to enrich themselves, but just think about it for a second because they were doing it just basically as a prank. But anyone out there who did want to enrich themselves can employ essentially the same techniques. And I'm sure that there are some safeguards that have been implemented and they talk about some of the safeguards that Rotten Tomatoes says that they have implemented to try to avoid some of the distortion like they had with misogynists who didn't like, I think it was uh, the the Wonder Woman movie. And there was this whole like, you know, campaign oh, to yeah, try to yeah. like, yeah, to vote down Wonder Woman. Uh, but, you know, still, anytime you've got a system and those the rules of that system are known to the people of how that works there's going to be, a, you know, some susceptibility to uh, manipulation and distortion. And I, I'm reading this article. It seems very credible to me that uh, Rotten Tomatoes has been distorted and that uh, Hollywood actually in some ways likes it. They talk about also how a, a rival site used to have a five star rating system, but they basically found that there was no Hollywood movie could get less than three stars, which uh. is, you know, it was kind of like, hey, that's two thumbs up or way up. There was never like the thumbs down. Yeah, so. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's all uh, it's it's all fascinating and uh, it is part of our life and culture and part of the World Wide Web world that we do live in now. It's so, like uh, uh, do you remember the Bodie McBoatface uh, situation? 
No, I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. So it was in England in like 2016, and they had a boat. I think it was the RSS Sir David Attenborough, and they wanted to rename it, and they put Bodie it up McBoat for a vote online, and the <laughs> one that won was Bodie McBoatface. And did it get renamed that? It did. <laughs> Yes, not only is the internet sometimes uh, just filled with trolls, it sometimes has a sense of humor. Sometimes those trolls are hilarious. I mean, like look at GameStop and stuff like that. You know what? I'm actually really looking forward to Dumb Money, which is the GameStop story coming out soon. I I really hope that we can get someone from that movie on to talk about it because I'm uh, a big fan of I, and of course, uh, same director, and I am deeply anticipating Dumb Money. So, so Ben... I think that just about does it this week. Uh, who do we have to thank? Uh, we should uh, definitely thank Alana Cody, our producer, who is, uh, even as we speak, getting us more cool interviews. Uh, I did one that I'm really excited about last week that uh, that I think went really well, and I'm doing another one in two days. We should thank Kay's Alectracci, who composed every scrap of music that you hear on here. You can, And he, he uh, just won some fellowship from Black Magic. Yeah, I saw that. Black like Magic a, Collective a, a, like awarded him some some things. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's always like winning stuff, it seems like. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, doesn't uh, need, and, he doesn't need our charity, but still <laughs> check him out at uh, musicbycase.com. And last, and I need to apologize so profusely to our, our editor, Ben Katz. Sorry about my voice. Sorry if you had to, you know, edit out a bunch of sniffles and sneezes and coughs. You work your ass off. You make us sound as good as we can possibly sound. And tonight I'm going to sound like like a frog that swallowed Barry White. I'm pretty sure that actually Ben is going to use AI to replace your voice with some sort of like, you know, uh, polyphonic, high pitched like teenage girl. So that's probably who I'm going to be talking to for like go for it, Ben Katz. That's way better than whatever the hell this is. All right, Ben, I'm going to finish it out, so I'm not going to make you talk anymore. Thank you. If you want to track down Ben Rock, you can find him at benrock.com. He, all his stuff is there, all of his socials, all of his film and his work, his things. Check out benrock.com to find more about Ben. Uh, I'm Ilya. You can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I, I occasionally post and connect with people over there. So track me down if you want to. And uh, I don't think we have anything else to say. Uh, ben, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.